on a Sunday having had wine. I, th I think my husband wasn't there and my kids were still small and my wine's finished and I have to get more wine before this is like 11 o'clock in the, in the day and the wine's done. So I have to get to the place <clears throat> because on Sundays the wine places close earlier that I got so I was actually half drunk walking down the steps to go and get more wine, leaving my kids in the flat alone. I got so nauseous in the block of flats that I just collapsed there at a little like bedding of flower, a flower bed and puked. And while I'm there, the, the caretaker of the, the place passes me by. And I even told him, please, please, here's my money. Just go buy, while I'm in this flower bed doing my wonderful, sophisticated thing, <laughs> I'm asking this guy to go and buy me wine, and he did. And there he comes back, and I'm back up on the back to the flat. I've got my wine, everything sorted. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, Tribe Leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 128. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. Many of those people discovered Tribe Sober via our challenges. And at the moment, we're running our annual 66-day challenge. It's called Hashtag Sober 66. Just sign up any day during September and you'll get 66 days of online, audio and community support from the day you signed up. We're giving away a free challenge to anyone who posts a podcast review. So please keep listening. More info about that at the end. Before we go to this week's guest, let me play you a voice note from one of our tribe members. At the time of recording, we are awash with tributes to Queen Elizabeth. But let's not forget the many everyday heroines amongst us. Here is one, Sue B. Saturday the 10th of September 2022. My journal entry. On advice from Annie Grace, I sometimes read my journal entries to myself to listen to later in case there is some kind of progress I need to get a lesson from. Today's entry. I've started to understand that happiness is an inside job. Admitting I feel happy and at peace is very strange to me. One of my whys was not feeling worthwhile. This is a very helpless feeling. Charlie, whom I cared for, was totally unresponsive. 
He recognized my voice and opened his eyes when I was vocal, and that was it. We were passionately in love. For the past seven years, I devoted my time 24-7 to looking after my soulmate. Being an unresponsive quadriplegic, he needed to be bathed, turned to prevent bread sores, tube-fed, suctioned, nappy care. In 2006, we were told he is as far as his evolution will allow him to progress. My social drinking turned to self-medication. All the hours of physio, speech therapy, hydrotherapy, hours of lifting him, transporting him, exercising him, were stopped by the professionals. And it was our responsibility to take over in home care. I felt so unworthy, so out of control of his recovery, and I became out of control of my drinking. I admitted I was drinking for the buzz and not the taste. Come on, vodka and soda water is awful. I was punishing myself as I felt I was a bad nurse, a failure. Nurses take an oath to serve, to care and to heal. And this was not possible. Charlie was not going to recover. I felt I was not enough to cure him. So I drank until I blacked out. This was easy and a way of life. I was so busy being angry that I avoided the truth and created a life that was unsustainable. I became a toxic person. I abused myself using names like failure, idiot, stupid, fucking useless. In March this year, the family and I allowed Charlie to move to eternity. It was a privilege to allow him to go and fish in greater waters again, to be free. The only real thing is, I'm in control at the moment, and I am learning to embrace my feelings. I am getting better. I am sober. At this moment, I'm 90 days, and I am at peace. I am learning to love the person I was. Janet, Sue, and Monica... You have saved my life and all my friends at Tribe Sober, you just are a friendship that I need daily. Every morning I wake up and look at a big red sign. Not today, lady, not today. You are enough. Thank you for posting that, Sue. Just one example of the beautiful people we have here in our tribe. Our podcast guest this week got sober at about the same time that I did, way back in 2015, which makes us sober sisters with seven years of sobriety each. Sober warriors, that's for sure. Jo Rowitz is an artist and I discovered her amazing work on Instagram one day. I fell instantly in love with a work of art called Anabantoide. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Jo. You can find this gorgeous work of art on the cover of our Tribe Sober podcast. According to the artist, this image embodies the warrior qualities within the female spirit. And that's why I decided it was so appropriate for our tribe. Yes, we do have some awesome guy members, but the majority of us are ladies. And we're certainly warriors in the ongoing battle against the booze. 
I began by asking Jo to introduce herself. Well, my name is Jo Ritz and um, I'm from South Africa. I live in Cape Town and I've got two boys. The one is nearly 19 years old and the, the younger one is turning 16 this year. And I've got a husband in the film industry and I'm an, a full-time artist. So that's my, that's my background Wow, what a what a creative family you've got there. Let's talk about the drinking. Yeah. <laughs> were, were you a teenage drinker? When did when did it all start for you? I didn't really drink in my school years. Maybe in my last year of school I started ugh, just having some wine with friends, not really huge party party animal. Maybe on weekends going out a little bit and, and drinking. So in the beginning, it was all just fun and games and an enjoyable time. Where, where I went to school was a, a town called Stellenbosch, and it's all wine farms. So the poison in that town was wine, and that was my poison for many years, was wine, red wine specifically. Yeah, but my, my drinking started maybe yeah last, last year of school and then slowly started progressing into my study years. Stellenbosch University has got quite a reputation. I've heard that the liquor industry, that some of the you know liquor companies, they actually uh, sponsor Freshers Week. Mm. So there's all this kind of cheap and free booze going around. Yeah. Which I didn't, I I didn't study at Stellenbosch University, but I mean that, that whole community there is very much, yeah. drinking is part of the daily routine there. It's, As um, it is in, in many places, exactly, <laughs> including yes. where I come it's from. It's acceptable wherever. <laughs> it is. It's a legal drug, and if we don't drink it, then we're, yeah. we're the ones that are odd ones out, aren't yeah, we? It, it's yeah. madness, really. So there you were, um, not drinking much at school, but getting a bit into it, you know, when you were studying. What happened then in your 20s? Did you start working as an artist straight away? Or? Yeah, so after school, I went and studied for two years, then started a relationship with my now husband. I actually knew him. But I think the drinking, when we got together, the drinking started picking up a bit more. And then I had my first child at 23. So I was basically just out of college, maybe a, uh, a year or two after that. And I think that was the main accelerator for my drinking to really kick off. It was a shock. It was a shock to have a child at 23. I had resentments about my husband carrying on with his career. My career was coming to a full stop. All my dreams out the window. <laughs> yeah, and just a shock. You don't know what to do with a little little baby. You're still a baby yourself at 23, I must say. <laughs> Absolutely, so absolutely. I, think, I, know, I was I was thirty when I had my son, and I I remember not knowing what to do. Yeah, it's yeah. all a bit overwhelming, isn't it? Absolutely overwhelming, and yeah, I think I just felt really sorry for myself that I'm in this position. Not that I didn't love my child, but it was just a selfish thing of where's my my dreams going now out the window. So yeah. I think the the wine became a very nice um, escape in the evenings once he was sleeping. 
it wasn't the problem then, but it started picking up. So, you know, that's that's where if I look back and if I try and sort of pinpoint the point of acceleration of my drinking, I think that's where it really took a turn. Was it a solitary thing? Was it you in the evenings drinking alone or were you with other moms doing the mummy juice thing or or was it a bit of both? Yeah, I think a bit of both. I had a friend, we were both sort of shell-shocked with these new babies. She was also <laughs> really, really young. We met at maternity class and when the babies came, we were just, yeah, we, we had gin together to, you know, drown ourselves in our sorrows <laughs> of having children and we don't, don't know what to do with these kids. But uh, apart from that, me and my husband would, would drink at night. But I also found it very comfortable to just have a glass of wine by myself and just tap out, tap out of mm. reality and sit, sit and just... It does a good job, I must say. Mm. It just numbs numbs you for a while doesn't but it I think another thing that happened in my study years I had an affair with a married man which was oh, it's a it's a long story I mean we, we don't have to go into that but that part of my life I think I just put away for so long I put it somewhere else where I can forget about it the embarrassment of or sort of betrayal you know of my own morals is something that I just put away in some kind of drawer in my mind and left it there to start festering, (laughs) not dealing with it. But I think the combination of that and having a child a year or two later was something... And then uh, you had another child, obviously quite soon. You just told me your boys are two years apart. Three three years years later I had Aaron... So in that time, I was still working. I was working at a film college, lecturing in special effects makeup and prosthetics and sculpting and casting and painting. So I would be, maybe took a year off here and there with the kids um, when they were each, each were born. Yeah, I, I carried on working for, for many years. I don't like to, to use the word functioning alcoholic you're either an alcoholic or you're not, whether you're functioning or non-functioning, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, well, I guess everybody's <laughs> a functioning one at the beginning, aren't they? <laughs> but yeah. sadly, some people go on to be non-functioning. Yeah. My sort of routine would look like this, if I could paint you a, a little picture. I would go to work, get the kids ready, go to work, do my, my work and do my work 100%, no issues. But by the time, say, 4 o'clock when I drive home, I'm already thinking about the drink. I'm thinking of where I should buy it, how much I should buy, and then when I'll have my first drink, basically immediately when I get home, I'll pour that first glass of wine. So that would that would be the routine, and then it'll carry on when, till whenever I go to bed. And not being yeah. totally pissed every single night, but definitely not sober, um, not not necessarily falling around. So I never thought I'm an alcoholic because mm. I'm not like lying on the ground paralytic every night. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm still making food. Obviously, the wine 
making food, drinking wine, that's the whole thing and that's normal, you know, in inverted commas. <laughs> Very familiar story. Yeah. So, and so w- would you say, Joe, you were getting through a bottle of wine a night? That, oh, that easily. That seems to be the norm for yes. many people that I work with. Easily. Yeah. And and then after a while, that was too little. The it, You know, the, the, the effect, um, I couldn't get the same effect than what I had years ago. So as we know, it's a progressive disease, this alcoholism. Mm. So, and it became too expensive to get bottled wine. So in South Africa, we have these things called pupsucks, and it's a box wine, five-liter box wine. We would actually, before we went to the five-liter, I went to the one-liter first, <laughs> and then that got too little because it's, it's nice. It's a box wine. You can't see the level of the amount of wine that's still in the box, so you just keep on tapping, tapping from the box, and you know, like filling your glass, not knowing how much you're actually drinking because you're just filling it up with a little tap in the box. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, They're very clever, the people that thought of that boxed yeah, wine. Yeah. So many, so many of us kind of use it like that. Yeah. Can I just ask you what's going on with your husband at this time? Is he a drinker? Does he sit in the evening with you in your box of wine? Or At, at that time or now, at present, at that time. Yeah. At that, no, at that time we were both drinking. Both drinking. Okay. I would say we were drinking the same amount, but I would also go and if I'm topping up our glasses, I would go to the, the, the kitchen, put some wine in my glass first, down that, and then fill my glass up again so that when <laughs> I go out, I know I've got an extra glass in me in case the wine is finished before I've had enough. You know, Then I know yeah. okay, I've had, I'm, I'm drinking more than he is because I'm scooping a few glasses in between as I'm filling up. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I Crazy. used to do that. I used to do that. You've just reminded me. I haven't thought about that for years. But, mm. yes, that's that's quite a trick, isn't it? It's like, would you like another glass, darling? I'll yeah. go and get them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are we like? Yeah. Right. So you're, we're talking late 20s, early 30s by now? Yes. Well, so were you worried or did it, was it not really on your radar? It was so normalized for you. I think for many years, it was just a normal thing to do. It was, I mean, in South Africa also, the drinking culture is quite, it is normalized. You know, you you sit at home and you get from work and you have a a drink. But my having a drink is not just having one drink. It's it's once I start, I can't stop kind of drinking. No off switch. There's no off switch and there's never enough. Even, you know, once the wine's finished, I would still send my husband to go and get more because it's not even nine o'clock. So those days you could still go and get wine till 11 o'clock at night. You know, since then the the liquor licenses and things changed. But, you know, those days it was fine. Just ask him to go and get more because the night is still young. (laughs) We still, we still. Like, need young and I'm still sober. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. At some point, it just, I don't know. It just became like Groundhog Day. It became yeah. like, yeah. I often say that Groundhog Day, the same thing over yeah. and over, doing the same thing every single day, and not really. You're in such a fog. You're not really. You know, there's something that's scratching 
in the back of your mind thinking, mm. geez, maybe this is not quite what living is all about. But then on the other hand, you also feel sorry for, for yourself because your dreams are shattered. You've got all this responsibility, being a young mom, whatever, whatever the excuses are that, that we tell ourselves. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Did you ever set rules, you know, that having a couple of days off drinking a week or... That, that came at a later stage. But at some point, my mother-in-law actually came to us and she said, listen, you guys have a problem. Both of us, you have a problem. There's alcohol addiction on both sides, on my husband's side and on my side, within our different families. His dad was actually in rehab like nine times in and out of rehab. So we, we know about addiction and we know about alcohol addiction and all of this. So in my mind, when she said that, obviously the first thing is absolute denial, <clears throat> getting angry and like how dare she say we've, we've got an alcohol problem. We are just, we just drink every day. What do you mean we've got an alcohol problem? But that little seed was planted. So she just mentioned it and somehow it's, it stayed within me. And I think that was the catalyst for me just really to start thinking about it. Just thinking about how do other people drink? How do I drink? How much do I drink? Can I stop? All these questions, you know, when you're in denial, you, you sort of yeah. tell yourself, but I can stop. What's the problem? I think what happens, Joe, is that we we kind of know because your mother-in-law planted that seed, didn't she? So we know that you know something's not yes. quite right, and we need to examine our, our drinking. But yeah. then our subconscious is saying things like, "But I'm going to lose my friends. You know, how will I relax in the evening? How will I have fun? You yeah, know, we yeah, end I mean, up with this mental battle, don't it's, we? It's all fear-based. Um, you know, the fear of the unknown of how you will be when you're sober. Yeah, how will you cope? How will you be? Will you be boring? All of these things. And also the laziness. I don't want to make a mission to stop drinking. I'd rather just drink. Mm -hmm. I don't want to work on myself. I don't want to admit there's something wrong. It's all fear-based. But in that time, you know, when, when that seed was planted and, and I'm in denial, I said, well, I'm gonna, I, I'll show you. I can stop drinking. <laughs> Or I'll show myself firstly. And I said, yeah. well, okay, well, yeah, now I'm not going to drink in the week. I won't drink in the week. I'll well, only here drink. Here come the rules. Yes, the rules. <laughs> I'll only drink on weekends. So come Tuesday, I'll be white knuckling it through and like obsessing about Friday coming. When is Friday coming so I can drink? So that didn't last for very long because I would – maybe do it one week and then just decide, oh, whatever, I'm not going to, the next week I'll make it till Tuesday and then the wine will be back in my basket. Getting wine was like getting milk and bread. You know, when I go well, to the shop. in the supermarkets <clears throat> next exactly. to the milk and bread. When you go to the shop, that's what goes into the basket. When there's very little money, there was always wine. We would count the cents just to go and buy wine. It got to a point where I started realizing, okay, well, obviously I can't stop. I can't do this on my own. Um, and, and incidents in between, like on a Sunday, having had wine, 
I, th- I think my husband wasn't there and my kids were still small and my wine's finished. I know I have to get more wine before this is like 11 o'clock in the, in the day and the wine's done. So I have to get to the place <clears throat> because on Sundays the wine places close earlier that I got so I was actually half drunk walking down the steps to go and get more wine, leaving my kids in the flat alone. I got so nauseous in the block of flats that I just collapsed there at a little like bedding of flower, a flower bed and puked. And while I'm there, the the caretaker of the, the place passes me by and I even told him, please, please, here's my money. Just go buy, while I'm in this flower bed doing my wonderful, sophisticated thing, <laughs> I'm asking this guy to go and buy me wine. And he did. And there he comes back and I'm back up on the, back to the flat. I've got my wine, everything sorted. Things like that. I mean, I can, I can tell you a lot of different incidents, but... You know, those kind of things were just, that's not me. What the hell? No. What, 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 how is that even possible? It's not me. How can I leave my kids alone? How can I be puking in a flower bed of the block of flats? It's insane. And still be asking, this is the addiction. I mean, this is so strong yeah. that I'm yeah. asking in this state that I'm in, I'm still asking the caretaker with no like embarrassment, asking him to go and <laughs> get me more wine. Um, what about what about Joe the next time you saw him when you were sober? Were you at least embarrassed then? No. <laughs> I think he was an alcoholic as well. So All right. No, but anyway, so, I mean, yeah, at, at some point, you know, I just realized, well, obviously this is not working and this is, this is getting worse and I cannot stop it myself. My husband's dad was in AA and a friend of mine, also her dad was in AA. She actually told me, I think it's just this one Sunday where I realized, listen, I actually need help. I cannot do this alone. So my friend suggests, I actually phoned her in tears with a glass of wine still in my hands, must say. Mm. This was the Sunday. Now, so the Monday I would stop. You know how it goes. The Monday I would stop and she suggested that her father will take me to an AA meeting. But that AA meeting, that specific one, was only the Thursday. So come the Monday, I told my mother-in-law, listen, you have to take me to an AA meeting. I can't wait till Thursday. And that's where my sober journey started. My very, very first AA meeting I just felt at home. I felt like I found my people. They were talking my language. They understood. I found the stories that told were things that I can relate to 100%. Um, The vocabulary that they were using were the way I couldn't tell anyone what was going on within me. They were giving me the words to express that and to actually be able to to say what was going on, even though I didn't yeah. even know what was going on. Yeah, but um, you you expressed that so so well. I mean that that feeling when you you find your people, as you put exactly. it, it's, it's huge, isn't it? The relief you realize it's not 
you you know yeah. it's not a problem it's every so many people suffer from this and that connection is really important and and we find that you know in our workshops people we do shares you know just like aa really and we ask people to introduce themselves and talk about their relationship with alcohol and it's a very emotional moment as you know mm. and you can tell that it's the first time that many of these people have even told their story out loud or mm. even acknowledged it to themselves just how unhappy alcohol is making them yeah. because they feel like you know they're with people they're in a safe space of people that understand you yeah. because we can't talk to many of our friends about this issue because they just don't get us and that's no. that's fair enough and, but that's why you need a community don't you absolutely and i mean even even things like that underlying feeling of dread i don't know how to describe mm. it that discomfort and that underlying irritability with life and with people and with yourself and you know all those things you get to know that other people are feeling it as well it's not just you that's weird <laughs> yeah yeah um but that's that's basically my, where my, my sober journey started was the first of june in 2015 this okay, year so that's that's interesting that's one month after me wow <laughs> that's amazing sober sisters we decided didn't we yeah amazing. mine was in may my my rock bottom was in may 2015 when uh, i was in paternoster with a group of friends and we uh, rented a house for a weekend and you know they were boozy friends and yeah. drinking all day saturday and then the next morning you know we were chatting about the previous day and i realized that i'd lost hours of that day you know i used to have terrible blackouts you know yes. they got more and more serious and in the end the blackouts they were you know i was functioning normally but i couldn't remember <laughs> anything and that really frightened me because i thought what am i doing to my brain you know this is now 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 you're reminding me of something because this is something that started happening with me i also started having blackouts but it was of conversations that I couldn't mm. remember what I said. I can remember the evening, but there were pockets of conversations that are just totally like blank. It was blank, and yeah. for me at that age, I thought, "But this is this is not this is like warning signs going on." Because if I'm under forty years old and I'm already getting blackouts, how is it going to be when I'm forty-five? You know, exactly. um, it was scary and it was concerning and. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, even even these things that so there's there's signs and there's warning signs and things. They're, they're you wake ignore up them, them really, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you you also ignore them for a while, but mm -hmm. um, once you get sober, you actually look back and you think, "Geez, all these warning signs yeah. were there." Yeah. Yeah, I think back, you know, as many of the people I talk to say as well, and it, it's a wonder that we're alive, really, because yeah. we took so many risks, you know. I don't know if you heard last Saturday's podcast, but that was uh, Samantha Cohen, a, a South African lady. You know, her rock bottom, her last wake-up call was driving the wrong way along the motorway in Joburg. Oh, I did that as well, yes. <laughs> and even after that, I didn't even... Uh, uh, I didn't have a problem. What do you mean? <laughs> I did that at yeah. night in Cape Town. Oh, you South, you South Africans and you're driving. Oh. They were in AA, so it worked, you know, and you, you worked through the steps and had a sponsor. And Yeah, it took, me, it took me about a year to get a sponsor. I just sat in those meetings. I went to meetings. I think I went to about three meetings every week. Um okay. 
I know they say you do ugh, 90 meetings in 90 days when you just get in, but ugh, that's suggested. It's everything suggested. You do the program like you like you yeah. want to. But I did three meetings a week, and at that point, I also at that point my husband was still drinking. He he stopped drinking two years after I stopped. Um, so at that point, he was still drinking at night. Um, and I just changed my routine. I started reading the AA literature, and I'm not, I'm a visual person. I don't read. I like to look at images. I, mm. you know, do art. So I never really enjoyed reading at all. But in that first month, I just soaked up every word of yeah. that book, any literature I could get just to also change my routine. Normally I would sit with my husband outside on the stoop and that's where we would spend our evenings. But I changed that when I got into, into AA. I just went to bed, well, sat in bed and read literature, not ignoring my husband, but not sitting, <laughs> you know, not, yeah. not doing that routine. What did he think of this idea of yours to get sober? Was he? No, he was, um, he was very supportive. No, very supportive. He was. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think that really kick-started an, a healthy sober starting point. Yeah, well, both of those things that you did, Joe, that are really good tips. You know, we say to people, just throw the book at it, you know, do mm. everything you can, make it a priority and read and read and listen, you know, yeah. and learn everything you can about alcohol, about addiction. And the more we learn, the less we really want to, to drink the stuff. Yeah. And I also love what you said about shaking up your routine, because that's really important. Because if we just stop drinking and then carry on doing exactly the same, then we miss it more. You know, yeah. There's a great big hole, isn't there? Yeah. But if we shake things up a bit and change our routine, then uh, I had one lady that used to go to bed really early when her children went to bed. She had young kids. And then she'd get up about 5 a.m. and she'd do the evening cooking because for her, she'd always start drinking when she was cooking. Yes. So she'd cook at 5 a.m. and she didn't want to drink at that time, fortunately. So she'd do the cooking, put it in the fridge, and then when the evening came, she was all right to go to bed very oh, early. A lovely story. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. You see, changing your routine, it, it really is the key, I think. Yeah, and I mean, well. things like, things like um, ugh, they give you these little pamphlets when you, when you join a meeting of AA. And in the one pamphlet, it said, if you're smoking, carry on smoking. If you um, eat... Eat the, the cupcakes, eat the chocolate, you know, drink coffee, do anything but take that first drink. So, yeah. you know, I wasn't, my, I loved salty things. So all of a sudden I found myself eating sweet stuff, drinking more coffee and sort of having permission to do that because that will stop me from yeah. not having that alcoholic drink. And Absolutely. Obviously we just you... have to focus on one thing at a time, don't we? Exactly. We always, at Tribe Sober, we say you can only chase one bunny at a time. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> no. if you're chasing lots of rabbits, you've got no chance, yeah. but maybe you can catch one. And also, I mean, you can't do everything at once. And once you, once no. you sort of get sober and the fog disappears, you actually can see things clearly. You, you can't work at everything at the same time. 
And we see that over and over again, you know, people, they, they get sober and then they think, oh, I must look at my, you know, eating habits or yeah. am I really happy in this job, you know, yeah. or maybe uh, I'm fed up with all my boozy friends and I'll find new friends. <laughs> you know, yeah, or, we, we really have the courage and the energy to make big changes, don't yeah. we? Or what happens as well is that you, you have such epiphany of wow, this is this new life. I want to give it to everyone else. You know, I need to share this with everyone and help everyone. Then you become this, you want to become the savior of the world with this newfound knowledge. Um, But in in that way, you sort of steer steer away from dealing with yourself. You know, it's like, it's actually an escape just to keep on helping other people and then you don't have to deal with yourself. So, at that that was also something that they warned me about is concentrate on your own sobriety at for yeah. at least a year before you start doing anything else in um, the program or outside the program what just take that full year and get sober and just concentrate on that nothing else just get that yeah sorted. absolutely because after a year, you've, your sobriety is settling down and you're getting yeah. more secure. But we still have to do the work. I mean, what, what kind of things do you do these days to sustain your and nourish your sobriety? Well, I, I still go to AA meetings and I just keep myself within the, the program, surrounded by people that's also in sobriety and on, on this journey. Because you need to keep on listening to other stories. There's always yeah. new people coming in or people with years of, of sobriety that, that shares. I think listening to shares and, you know, doing the 12 steps. Well, I do the 12 steps. I've got sponsees as well, so I do the 12 steps with them. And then, obviously, myself. But if you, yeah, I think if you keep yourself, whether you're doing AA or not, if you keep yourself within a community of people, surrounded by people that's also on the same path, you can't do it without that kind of support. No. Especially people who understand you. It's one thing that your family understands what you're doing, but they won't understand the the depth of it. um, Absolutely. If it's not people with with experience of the same. Yeah. yeah road yeah. of recovery yeah we really kind of get each other don't we yeah and they they say that connection is the opposite of addiction and i love that mm. you know and i i think the sober the recovery community is such a an interesting place someone said to me the other day you know it's like sober land it's a whole yeah. uh, secret place <laughs> yeah. and, and it's awesome and we all talk to each other and we all expose our vulnerability you know yeah. we, we don't pretend yeah so um yeah it's, I, it's, I agree it's getting rid of the secrets you know it's those yes those secrets we keep that keep us um sick because you're keeping secrets from yourself and you keep like your like your married man yes keeping secrets <laughs> from in general your work people your extended family whatever whoever you're keeping secrets from and you can't, it doesn't have to be a huge secret it could be something as simple as i am topping up my glass of wine in between mm. getting more wine for my husband and un, uh, only i know of that now all of a sudden i'm telling it to total strangers in a meeting room of AI and they're all sitting there laughing because they did this exact same thing (laughs) (laughs) and I thought it's just me (laughs) no no no
no, sorry. So you mentioned your husband again. So did you inspire him? Because uh, he followed your pattern, didn't he? A couple of years later, did he go to AA as well? He, what we actually did, we, we had an intervention because somehow um, his, his drinking got, got worse. And obviously me being sober, I could see that. I wasn't in it doing it with him. So when you're drinking, you can't see it. We as a family had an intervention. He went to one or two AA meetings, but it wasn't for him. He just stopped drinking. He did it on his own and he's still sober. So he'll be five years this year and I'm seven years this year. Good for him. Just think of your kind of family, what would have happened if you'd have carried on for another 10 years? You know, your boys, when you stopped, your boys must have been about 12 and 10 and 12, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because it's about role modeling, isn't it, for kids that age, you know, because they they probably have the odd drink and, you know, you want to be able to explain the, the dangers to them. And and if you and your husband were both drinking your heads off, they, they would just laugh, wouldn't they, if you yeah. tried to talk no, to them? Yeah, and, and you actually made me think about something else now. When I was still drinking, you know, I would I would give them a kiss goodnight, but they would always turn their heads. And I couldn't understand it. And when I got sober, I realized it's because my breath smelt like sour wine they couldn't stand the the smell wow i mean it, and it's such a powerful image to think that your child would turn their head when you're giving them a good night kiss and it's all about you smell like alcohol you smell disgusting where you in that moment thinking you're doing something so loving and so motherly but it's the total opposite you're actually doing damage yeah, we've got a German guy in our community, uh, and he told that story. He got sober. I mean, he didn't have a massive problem, but he he definitely drank wine probably every day. And then he stopped, and he had small children. And they said to him, uh, "You know, Dad, um, when you were drinking, we used to, your breath used to smell of mm-hmm. alcohol, and we used to hate you kissing us good night. You know, yeah. it's, but now we love it." So. Yeah. You, you never think about things like that, do you, when you're in it? Goodness sake. You don't. You think I've put them to bed and I've given don't them a bath and I've stumbled my way through a story. Rushing the, the, the book, yeah. the evening book, just so you can get back to your drink. You know? Because we deserve it. Because exactly. we're a good parent. Yes. <laughs> All the reasons. So if, um, if somebody that's drinking a lot is listening to this and they haven't made up their mind whether or not to, to stop, what would you say the benefits are if you were trying to inspire and sell sobriety for someone? What have been the benefits of sobriety for you? You know what? The, ben- the, the biggest benefit for me is that I came back into myself. I think for many years it felt like I wasn't quite – year but I wasn't really here I think I sort of betrayed myself in a way and I lost myself for a very long time even though I was functioning a functioning human being lecturer mother wife all of this Joe um, was gone uh, my my sort of core person was gone you will get that back you will get your your core person back, who you are, 
not who you meant to be, just who you are and maybe someone that you left behind long ago. Um, and I'm not thinking about like as a child, that's that kind of uh, leaving behind. Whenever the drinking started, that person who you are before the drinks took over, that and more I got back, except for the fog and except for smelling something better, seeing better, your skin gets better, all these physical things get better. Your brain feels clear, but the, on a spiritual level, yeah, just, just finding something really much deeper within yourself and getting to know where you left yourself long ago and getting yourself back. That's, that's the biggest gift is Absolutely, is absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, they say that our emotional maturity kind of stalls at the age mm -hmm. that we start drinking. You know, so I started drinking heavily at the age of 18, you know, and I remember. And when I finally got sober, I was so kind of full of emotion for months because yeah. we're, when we're pushing those emotions away with booze, you know, they, they will reappear. Yeah. And yeah, I love what you say about the, the reconnection because we talk a lot about recovery, but what we're recovering is ourselves, isn't it? Because yeah. we, we've lost ourselves, we've lost touch with ourselves. Yeah. And as part of our program, we offer art therapy, uh, just mentioning that because you're an artist, because um, our art therapist has explained that we don't have to be an artist like yourself we don't have to be good at art we don't have to be able to draw but just you know expressing ourselves visually will enable us to gradually reconnect with ourselves i thought that was that was a really interesting way to continue the the journey yes no absolutely i mean i'm thinking you know one of the things before i got sober i, I thought i would never be able to paint if there's not a glass of wine in my hand, how will I even do that? I'm used to painting into the night, having a ball of a time on my own with wine and just painting and, and sort of believing that I'm connecting to something on a spiritual level, but the spirits were actually in the bottle. Not. <laughs> but when I got sober and I did, the first painting I did sober was also a self-portrait. By, by chance, it was a self-portrait. It was the first self-portrait I did, and it was the first painting that I did without alcohol. And it was an incredible, incredible experience to, to go through that and realize, wait a minute, this is actually possible. It's possible to make art without having alcohol, and it's possible to connect to that creative force on a much deeper level than I did when I was drinking. And now yeah. when I wake up and I look at the art that I did at night, it looks fabulous. Where <laughs> when I was drinking and I would look at the work I did previous and I would be like, what the hell did I do? <laughs> Off pissed painting and thinking it's marvelous. And the next morning you look at it and you want to throw it out the window. Yeah, that's that's so interesting, Joe. Because I uh, I work with quite a few creative people, more kind of writers than than artists. But they always they always worried, you know. They say, "Oh, but I'm going to lose my creativity." You know, mm. I'm always having some wine when I'm writing. And I think, you know, there's all these myths, aren't there? Well, some of them are are myths, some of them are true. 
you know, artists in the old days, you know, and writers, you know, people like uh, Hemingway, you know, he was a, a renowned alcoholic. So they, they've almost set the scene, haven't they? If you're going to be creative, then you've got to to love your alcohol. Yeah, it's, it's like this This society gives this image of artists or any, anything in the arts, with, within the arts, acting and writing and arts, visual arts. It's yeah. like it's this bohemian lifestyle where you're just yeah. taking drugs and drinking alcohol and creating. And it's, I mean, it's the movies kind of, kind of carry carry on that. <laughs> and it's Absolutely. it's not like that. You get a lot of sober people that's creatives that's doing in, incredible work, and they're doing it sober. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and the people that I have worked with, the writers, you know, they when they've overcome this mental limiting belief, because that's all it is, you know, mm. they they say to me, you know, I'm writing more, I'm writing better. So it's, you know, a complete myth. So if anyone is listening to this and they're creative, please don't don't let that block and you because yeah, your creativity and, will increase. And on that note, I mean some some nights I would be nine o'clock, I'll be you know, I'll be so tired and I'll just go to bed and I'm so tired and all of this. But it was actually the alcohol that's making yeah, me yeah. drowsy. Um, now, I mean, I work till two at night, wake up six o'clock, take, take my youngest to school, come back, start working, and I'm <laughs> totally awake. I'm yeah. working much more, many more hours than I did when I was drinking and I'm making – much more art than I was when I was drinking. So it's, it's just the benefits are outweighs it by far. And yeah, we, we rediscover our energy, don't we? Because I think alcohol, it saps uh, not only your energy, but your motivation. You know, oh, after yeah. a few glasses of wine, you just don't yeah, want to do it, anything. It's like this, this um, vicious circle of having thoughts and thinking about all your plans and it just goes in circles and you never take action to actually make those yeah. plans materialize and that's the biggest thing that i that i that happened to me is is i took once i got sober i had the ability to take action and actually make those yeah. things a reality all those things i wanted to do um sitting on the patio or on the terrace on the stoop drinking wine and thinking about all these things I want to do with my life and never getting to them because I'm just sitting and drinking every night. So, and yeah, yeah sobriety can give that. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. I've had a look at your website, which is fabulous. Just talk a little bit about your art, what style it is, and how people can can have a look at it themselves. Well, I'm, I mainly work in clay. It's a air drying clay that I use. You're going to have to go and look at my Instagram account to go and see it, but but I'll try and describe it. I roll the clay out quite thinly and then sculpt onto the clay with indents and impressions and cutting out certain areas so there's negative and positive spaces but it's really thin maybe a two millimeter or so so it's clay sculptures that I make um, and it's like if you think about ugh, these cookies that you get with these indents where you take a fork and you sort of press into the cookie to make an indent that's the kind of look that it's got. It's quite interesting, and you can find my Instagram account is j o j 
dot roots, R-O-E-T-S. Um, and from there, you'll find all the links to where my work's available and where my website is and all of that. But I love what I do. I'm immensely grateful for sobriety because I won't be at this place living my my dream that I've had from being a really, really small little child, being a full-time artist. If I didn't get sober, I wouldn't be here. And I 100% know that. Thank you so much for the share, Joe. Let's pull out some key points. Joe's drinking wasn't too hectic during her college years, but when she had a child at 23, she found herself feeling resentful of the way her career had ground to a halt, whereas her husband's life had not been disrupted to the same extent. And when she had another child after a couple of years, she found that drinking wine every evening became her way to relax. She was working as a college lecturer, but by the time it got to 4pm, her thoughts had turned to wine. Where would she get it that evening? How much would she get? And of course, the first thing she would do on arriving home was to pour a glass. And like many of us, Joe had no off switch. She would continue drinking all evening, and what began as one bottle eventually became two. In fact, she graduated to wine boxes as it was easier not to think about the quantity she was drinking. She felt she was trapped, and we agreed that daily drinking puts us into a kind of groundhog day, where we wake up feeling determined not to drink, but by late afternoon we've changed our mind. Basically, we've been in withdrawal all day long, and that's why that first drink tastes so good. One day, Joe's mother-in-law told her that she thought they both had a problem with alcohol. Jo and her husband were still in denial, so they felt angry about this comment. But for Jo, the seed had been planted, and it was the catalyst for change. The drinking continued, however, and like many of us, Jo began to amass her drinking stories. She shared one of those stories about when she passed out in a flower bed in her apartment block. When the caretaker came to help her up, she just gave him some money and told him to go and buy her some more wine even though she'd obviously already had plenty. Finally, one Sunday, Jo realised she would have to get some help, and one of her friends took her to an AA meeting. Listening to the shares made her realise she was not alone in this, and gave her a language to express how she was feeling about her drinking. And that's why it's so important to join a sober community who know what we're going through. Our friends will either tell us, just to cut down, or if they drink like we do, they'll tell us we're fine and making a fuss about nothing. As Joe said, you need other people in recovery to understand the depth of it. Secrets will make you sick, and there's no need for any secrets with your sober community. We've all been there. Joe threw the book at her alcohol problem. She went to three meetings a week and spent her evenings reading sober literature rather than drinking with her husband. Of course, those early months are really tough, and we agreed that the only priority is just not to drink and stack up those alcohol-free days. We need more or less a year of sobriety so that it becomes the new normal. Not only have we quit drinking, but we've learned how to navigate our alcohol-drenched society. 
Even though AA was not the right choice for Joe's husband, he did eventually ditch the booze and follow her example. And now she's so delighted that they're both going to be better role models for their children. The biggest benefit of sobriety has been discovering who she really is. Joe had lost her true self and has even discovered that as an artist she can connect with a creative force on a much deeper level than when she was painting with a glass of wine beside her. We agreed that the link between alcohol and creativity is yet another myth that needs to be smashed. Joe is able to work much longer and produce much better quality work now she is sober and the alcohol is no longer sapping her energy and motivation. Even when she was drinking, her mind was always full of ideas, but now she no longer just has ideas, she actually implements them. She still goes to meetings to sustain her sobriety and now has sponsees of her own. It's so important to stay connected to your sober community. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey. We've got people just starting out, people struggling, people doing well and people with several years of sobriety and we're all inspiring and supporting each other. Of course we have members leaving the tribe after a few months of sobriety as they feel that they are fixed but then they often return and have to start all over again, have to do that really hard bit again. Because the danger of going it alone is that you may well get to that stage when you think, I've been sober for months, surely I can have just one glass of wine now. Well, the harsh truth is that you probably can't. So even if you've been sober for months, that doesn't mean the work is done. It does mean that the emphasis can shift from quitting the drink to discovering new interests to make sure that you thrive and enjoy your sober life. Paying it forward in the sober community is a wonderful way to stay connected, to stay on track and to help others. And that's exactly what Jo does. She's an AA sponsor and she's also a member of Tribe Sober. So please have a look at Jo's Instagram feed. It's amazing. You can find it by going to jo.roets and she not only posts the finished articles of all of her lovely art, but she uh, posts little videos showing you how she's actually putting it together. It's so inspiring. Please have a look. You might be tempted to buy something just like I did. So let me end the podcast with a message from one of our chat rooms. This message is from the 66 Day Challenge Group. Two weeks sober. Oh my God. To think, before signing up here and listening to all the podcasts and reading the posts, I was lost in the darkest of places, drinking one bottle every night, starting at five. I was constantly puffy in the face and the feet, cranky, lifeless, weak, uninterested, controlled, trapped and very down on myself. In two weeks, I've risen above all this, thanks to the tribe. I'm eating healthily, going to bed early, protecting myself. I've told my family and friends I cannot drink because if I do, I will not stop. That's how much wine has had a hold on me. I'm journaling and exercising gently. I'm waking up with no self-hate. I'm free, thank God. I will continue to put this sobriety to the forefront of my life. Nothing is more important to me. 
Janet, Sue, the whole tribe, don't stop what you do because you've changed my life. Thank you for that awesome message. And I love the way that lady is making her sobriety a priority in her life. As she says, nothing is more important. And as women, we're often not very good at putting ourselves first. I always say that my recovery is the foundation on which the rest of my life is built. At the time of recording, there's still a couple of weeks left to sign up for our annual challenge. That's audio, online and community support to get you through 66 days of sobriety. Why 66? Because 66 is long enough to change a habit and to build a whole new neural pathway. Sign up any day during September and your 66 days of support will start from that day. So just go to tribesober.com, hit the hashtag Sober66 button and join the 100 plus other people on the Sober bus. And if you'd like a free Sober 66 challenge, then all you need to do is post a review for this podcast. Because the more reviews we get, the more people this podcast will reach. And that's our mission in life, to help more people to understand that they don't need to drink just because the ads and the movies tell us we should. They don't need to drink just because their friends and their family do. There is a different way. We can say no. The smart people are ditching the booze, so why not join them? So please leave us a podcast review and then email me a screenshot, janet at tribesober.com and we'll put you on our hashtag Sober6 challenge for free. That's exactly what Elise did last week. Her podcast review went something like this. I find the information in this podcast interesting and I'm curious to know more. I've heard a few testimonies and it sounds amazing. It's also the first time that I hear about 66 days sober and why 66 days. I'm excited to explore some more. Well, thank you, Elise. And it's lovely to see you enjoying the ride on our sober bus. So that's it from me, guys. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.